Welcome back to Glass Onion Minute. This is the Movie by Minute podcast. We break down the sequel or companion to Knives Out, Glass Onion. We do one minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host this week. I'm back. My name is Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm an Emmy-nominated television producer who has been a podcaster for well over a decade. I'm the host of the Locked On MLB show, and I also was the host of the Bull Durham Minute podcast and the Sully Baseball podcast, and I've been on a lot of these Movie Minute shows. My guest host this week is a brand new guest host for the show. It is Rick Ingham. Rick, how are you doing? I am doing great, Sully. Glad to be here on the show. Uh, long time, first time, I guess. <laughs> and uh, tell people a little bit about you and your your relationship to the world of the podcasting. Absolutely. I am one half of the team behind the Mad Max Minutes. Since 2017, we've been breaking down the Mad Max movies one minute at a time. And most recently, I am one of a trio we call ourselves the Sword Boys, going cut by cut through your favorite '80s, '90s, and today sword and sorcery movies. Oh wow! So I mean, I mean, let's think about '80s ones. Um, I'm guessing Willow is on there. <laughs> so um, far, I'm... we've covered Highlander from 1986, and mm -hmm. as these episodes are coming out, we should be in the latter half of the Beastmaster. Oh, Beastmaster! Now we're talking. Absolutely, All right. Mark Singer. You gotta go if you're gonna go. We gotta go. Um, <laughs> is is Dragon Slayer on there? Oh my gosh, we have I think somewhere in the ballpark of about forty different movies on our to do no. list. Not no, all talk. of them are gonna get the full breakdown, but yeah, you know we're gonna try and see if the cream rises to the crop rises to the top. Well, for those of you unfamiliar with, with Dragon Slayer, that's a film that came out in 1981. And it's probably best remembered because it was revolutionary for the great stop motion genius Phil Tippett, who created a method of stop motion animation called Go Motion, which allowed for there to be a tiny bit of movement between each take of a stop motion animation. So it no longer seemed to have that herky jerky effect. And the when it came out in 1981 the dragons and dragon slayer look like well we went to the zoo and got a couple of freaking dragons uh i have no idea if it holds up but i know uh 11 or 12 year old paul sullivan watching that on either movie channel or hbo saying like well those are dragons that's what they are those are those are actual dragons so um i i you know i gotta be honest I, this is i am showing my my age here a little bit but as someone who used to pour over Cinefix magazine and Starlog magazine. I, I miss the feeling of going to a movie, seeing a special effect, and wondering how they did that, and then reading the Cinefix and finding, oh, they did this and this instead of, yeah, they they they, they rendered it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, if and that's, I mean, there are still films that amaze visually and and are 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 just engrossing i'm not saying that that's it's it's impossible to do now it's just you used to read about science fiction and, and special effects films and it was like reading the journals of a mad scientist mm -hmm. as opposed to a bunch of people in palo alto hitting you know control c control v and uh it you know it's uh uh i do miss that but then again i miss a lot of things in my youth and i miss 
I miss being as thin as I was the first time I felt I was fat. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. There's definitely a lot of texture that gets translated by a physical prop that is hand animated. Mm -hmm. um, I love it when a lot of the movies that we see nowadays, when they don't want us pay a bunch of money to animators, like they'll go through and they'll use some of those old methods. And sometimes when they do mostly uh, in camera stuff, just embellished a tiniest bit by modern technology can just make it look so amazing. Yeah. Well, also looks so amazing is uh, Helen, who we see at the beginning of this clip, uh, Janelle Monet. Minute 121 begins with Helen confronting the guests and saying what she saw. I saw him that night at Andy's house. I saw the napkin before he burned it. We didn't. We didn't. You would lie for a lie, but you won't lie for the truth. You're still holding on to his titties. You shitheads. Plunk. I need you to do something. I'm sorry, Helen. I gave you the truth. This is where my jurisdiction ends. And ends with Benoit apologizing. I have to answer to the police, the courts, the system. There's nothing I can do. So, hey, um, let me ask you a question here before we go dive into this minute here. Um, did you see this film in the theater? <laughs> I was not one of the people who saw this film in the theater. I was one of those people who caught it on streaming after the fact. Mm -hmm. I was a big fan of the initial Knives Out movie. And so I was anxiously awaiting this next, um, I guess, chapter in the Benoit Blanc oeuvre, if you want to say it. I mean, it's all Ryan Johnson's films, but like. You know, it's the Benoit Blanc uh, cinematic universe, whatever, the BBCU. Yeah. Uh, but I was really excited to watch it. So I was one of those people who waited until it was streaming, and then I watched it pretty much as soon as it was available. I know that Ryan Johnson hated the fact that the marketing included the A Knives Out mystery on the marketing. But, you know, I say tough, tough. I mean, it's called Glass Onion in the movie, and you're, you're creating a, a, a unique franchise here. And it's kind of... It's like an episode. If if it's like if Columbo was a show, if if uh, you know if you know Kojak is a show, it's like another episode. And a lot of times you saw when they used to do the Friday uh, mystery movies with Columbo or McLeod or whichever other uh, mystery it was on TV in the seventies, it would be presented as a movie. Like a, like a they'd be like ninety minutes long, mm -hmm. and there will occasionally be a reference to. A previous case but most of the time it was here's a murder and and colombo pulls up in his car and you know and we go through it and you know dick van dyke takes you know does his thing or jackie cooper does his thing or leonard nimoy does this thing and you know you get to see people having fun and then you know having fun playing these delicious villains and then you know so this acts as 
a like another book, like another mystery book, like another Perot book or another Miss Marple book. And yeah. so I think that that it's I, I think that it's some a, a kind of a film series that I think has potential for having longevity because it's not one of those things like, okay, you have to see these two films to understand it. Like if you didn't see Knives Out, chances are you could probably figure this film out. You know, it helps, but we're, you know, it's a new group of people and there's a formula to it. Absolutely. When you get a character like Benoit Blanc, you can literally just drop him into anything. And as long as you fill the story with enough intrigue and twists and turns, you know, people will stay along for the ride. I really appreciated when I watched The Glass Sunday the first time that they did not spend the whole time talking about, oh, that thing that happened back in the mansion and yeah, making a million different references because it wasn't necessary. Right. You know? And the, and the other thing is, is that um, there's a formula. You have a young, beautiful woman who is thrown into um, a position of either victimhood and or power and or intrigue of a bunch of very rich, awful people and put in a very wealthy yet visually stimulating environment and throw Benoit Blanc into the middle of it and have a mystery that probably if you take two seconds, and probably could poke holes in it if you really gave it you know a once over but you just it's it's a fun ride because it's filled with stars who love or who are playing against type and very clearly having the time of their lives and then there's a great you know great music in the end credits and i'm feeling you know they're doing a third one i I want them to keep doing it because there's no shortage of stars there's no shortage of environments of you know visually interesting rich environments to have and because it's not beholden to a arc or it isn't beholden to you know a structure there's there's comfort to be had in a formula that works mm-hmm. it's the reason why we watched you know why colombo or law and order law and order how many decades is law and order on and those are as predictable as the sun rising and sun setting and yet we find comfort in that mm-hmm. and so there's a there's a kind of a comfort food element to these movies and why i think that they're they'll keep being made yeah, as long as Daniel Craig wants to do them, that's is that's how I'm looking at it. Like Benoit Blanc is such a laid back and I would say fun character, especially compared to something that's more action oriented, like the Bond series. But you can keep rolling out Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc until you know the end of time, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, is he's not going to be breaking himself, jumping off of a you know aqueduct or riding a motorcycle on top of a train you know it's, well, it's, I, a, it's a hercule poirot sort of situation you can drop yeah. him into literally any setting and the thing that i think for him because his approach to the bond films is to do it very intensely to you know there, there was he did very seriously he threw himself in physically and that's one thing that i think was his performance in um and, and took it very very seriously which i think caught so many people off guard with the original knives out that it was anti-bond he was you know he was he was clearly having the time of his life he was being silly and we saw a different side to him and you you would you've got to think that this is a much more enjoyable role to play than keeping you know keeping himself for months and months and months at peak physical condition and also 
peak intensity. This he, he sort of have fun with his war, sort of hang out in beautiful places with beautiful people and have a blast. And, you know, I mean, I'm going to make a reference to another film series, which obviously was much worse than this one in terms of quality, but it's what made the cannonball run work. You know, a bunch of movie stars wanted to get together and have fun on the set of a film. This happens to be, you know, the Cannonball Run was slapped together and and they were basically back at the hotel getting drunk at, you know, three minutes, you know, three hours after they started shooting. But, you know, this is, you know, carefully crafted and everything. But this or the Ocean's Eleven series are films where you got to see, you know, movie stars having fun, being in exotic locations and, and and I think it's one of the reasons why the first one was such a big hit was that there were so many like escapist films and like you know popcorn or comfort food films that are all aimed towards teenagers and comic book lovers. And finally, it's like, hey, there's one for an adults now. This is one for grownups to in and for grown-ups and to have it not be super serious but like oh here's a fun film for grown-ups to watch and i think that there was so it's like almost counter-programming there was so everything was designed for how are we going to get superman into film how are we going to get the luke skywalker back into it or or spider-man and i'm all for those movies but i also you know it's, if it's the only thing on the buffet and someone else offers a shrimp cocktail, a lot of people are going to gravitate towards that shrimp cocktail. And I think that that's uh, what we're, what, why I think the success of these films came about. I think it also has to deal with uh, a movie that rewards viewers for, play, for paying attention. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what these Ryan Johnson mysteries are all about. Yeah, oh, there's, and there's another factor, and I did mention this in the previous minute, is you want to watch them again because you yep. want to see, oh, okay, oh, that's what... Be, I mean, in in one of the previous minutes where you see her, you know, in, in I actually had two minutes where she was on a boat and there's like a weird shot of you see her hand, you know, holding onto the rail. I, like, hmm, I wonder why they have that shot. And then when you see the flashback, like, oh, it's because she's about to vomit. She's again, she's she's seasick, but she doesn't want to, you know, she doesn't want to lead on. Um, and and little moments like, you know, when you see her, you know, who's that silhouette here? Oh, who's that? Who's that? What was that snapping branch you heard in the background? And you want to you want to watch it again because it's like a parlor trick you want to see if everything worked well okay let's get onto this because this is when things are falling apart and you see helen who's covered in the blood slash you know hot sauce on that you know her beautiful uh white pantsuit and she's going around trying to get trying to see who's on her side and you know and it's a clear moment where everyone is sees is is out for their own out for their own good even when the truth is obviously you know staring everyone in the face Mm -hmm. yeah everyone is so kowtowed to miles because he wields so much power and influence over their lives they're not willing to go against that especially now that the evidence has been destroyed which is just such a frustrating moment to see everything fall into place and suddenly have it all go up in smoke. And 
I think the most difficult part of this minute specifically is seeing the frustration on Helen's face as she goes around and realizes that she's surrounded by a bunch of cowards, except for the one ally she has in this room, which is Benoit. Yeah. Oh, and, and the, the very first one she's looking at, at least in this shot, is Whiskey. Mm -hmm. And we know that Whiskey is not really part of this group in terms of her longevity, but she also knows that she needs for her brand uh to to be part of this and you see there's the of all the ones she has the most shame on her face like i know and she was the only one to say when they were walking around the pool earlier in the film like she was the only one to express sympathy about what had happened and and so there's just a complete like you know she can't she can't even bring her head up there and there's a wonderful little moment though when um, you know, when she comes up to Catherine Hahn and she's trying to, she's about to, she, how do I say it? Like she's, she's, she's fumbling for the words of, cause she knows she's wrong. And then she looks back at, uh, you know, she looks back at Edward Norton, by the way, I have a tendency to do that. I have a tendency to just refer to him by the, the actor's names. If anyone has a problem with that, you're going to have to just deal with that. And when she looks back at Edward Norton, he has this expression, like it's almost a grin, like you're about to say, and they play a little trill on the piano, like a -de -de -de, as if, as if that was, uh, uh, you know, Edward Norton's character saying, are you really going to do it? You're really going to do it. And immediately she backs down. And so I think that was just a great little moment in the music score to, to sort of play off the, uh, the his control and how he's playing her he's playing her like a piano at this point and she knows she doesn't have even though she knows she's saying the wrong thing you know you know you know governor claire knows she's saying the wrong thing miles braun is like i don't care i'm playing you mm -hmm. i'm playing you and helen just doesn't know how to deal with it and speaking of expressions around the room you've also got leslie odom who yeah. refuses to even look at Helen. He spends this entire minute with his eyes down looking at the ground. He refuses to make eye contact. But in a different way than Whiskey. Because mm -hmm. Whiskey was her head down in shame. And this is almost you know, putting your fingers in the ear and going la 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 la. Like if I don't look at you, this isn't happening. You know, it's it's almost like it's almost like on a Zoom meeting when you hit the camera, turn the camera off. You know, he's just like, if I don't, all I need to do is not acknowledge this happening mm -hmm. and it'll soon be over yeah he starts off with an intent he leslie odom jr he sees what kate hudson is doing because hey kate hudson stares daggers right back at janelle monet and so leslie odom jr starts off looking right at helen but then as soon as Claire, Catherine Hahn is Claire backs down. That's when his eyes drop. And they do a thing when she says, you're still on his titties. And, you know, he does the whole thing with the lighter. Um, they do kind of a weird reverse shot where it's like, they're now facing a different direction. You know, there's, they're looking when you, when, when she comes up to them, they're looking, they're on screen left, looking right. And when she calls them, you know, you're still on their titties, they then cut back 
and they're on the right hand of the screen looking uh, right to left. And in a film, I, I refuse to think this is an accident because Ryan Johnson, this whole movie, has been using uh, blocking placement of the characters in the frame and movement within the frame to denote character development. And so the fact that they were facing one way and now they're facing another and they're facing the same direction that Birdie is now, it's a way of them saying, yeah, we're all on the same side. We're all on the same side. And they both look shameful for doing it, but it's something that is, uh, you know, that is necessary. And when they cut, they're on the, they're on screen right, and then they cut back to Edward Norton, who's also on screen right. So it's kind of, you know, again, uh, these are the sort of things that may sound like I'm trying to dig where there's no oil, but when you see way, throughout the whole film how carefully everyone is placed in the frame, that that I can't say that as being an accident. And I love the arrogance on Edward Norton's face when he fl does flick that lighter because mm -hmm. he literally just torched the key bit of evidence that yeah. Andy yeah. needed. And he's really, you know, what's, uh, what's that phrase? Putting salt in the wound well and there's a, there's another element to it too i mean there's a lot of things have multiple meaning obviously he's flicking the thing because he just he he's wielding that power but there's also um there was that period of time at a concert when you want to show that oh is that the end of the show you hold up the lighter you know there's a little bit of uh oh is that the is you know are, are you done you know there I mean, there's all the, the there. I, I mean, I don't know if that was intentional, but that was an image that came to my mind that you you turn on the lighter at the end of the show, uh, to say, and that's a, as if to say, yeah, you're putting on a good show. It doesn't really matter. Um, and yeah, and once again, everyone is is framed around all this art that he has no real concept about. I read somewhere, and I'm, I guarantee someone else has um, brought this up in a previous minute. But the painting of uh, Edward Norton in the background is Edward Norton's face painted on Brad Pitt's body from Fight Club. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of a, a Fight Club mashup uh, that's yeah. going on in this room that's filled with art that he has no real appreciation of. It's just there as art as status symbols. But it's a really it's also a really nice moment for for um, between, you know, Daniel Craig, you know, between Helen and Benoit because you know they they've been allies on this and it's to the we've gotten to that point where he can only go so far he can only take it so far you know and there was obviously she's turned to him for you know he's obviously still on her side but and you know Benoit is screen left looking screen right so he's not on the side of everyone else but he's somewhat powerless while having this overly macho image of Edward Norton sort of looming over his shoulder. Mm. Yeah, I, I appreciated with this movie that Ryan Johnson chose to 
I guess, step away from what he did in Knives Out, be, being that while the police were present, all of the evidence was brought to light. You had the final act by Chris Evans that cemented his guilt and all that. And here, you're in a situation where <clears throat> you can't wrap everything all up nights and neat. You know, the motive and crime and opportunity like it's all been laid out it's all here and yet in the system that benoit operates in in the system that daniel craig is supposed to represent as far as like justice via the law he's powerless because of the you know clowning around to reference other paintings that are behind his head that Edward Norton as Miles Braun has orchestrated here. He has committed this very petty crime, ruined Helen's life by killing her sister, and and now is seemingly going to get away with it from this ridiculous circus that he's put them all in the middle of. And it goes to, I think it goes to another element. You're 100% right, but I think it also goes to another element because it's saying something a little bit about the sort of reality and the image that people are trying to create for themselves they're all adhering to him because he could make them create a presentation of them that they want to be that is false and he's in he seems to be in total control of that of birdie's fashion career of her uh, you know, of Catherine Hahn's political career, of Leslie Odom's scientific career, that you know, they're all sucking on the teat, as she, as, he, as she said. Even Whiskey wanted to have her brand, that those elements, which are all fake, and they all know it's fake, but if they can still present it, then it doesn't matter what the truth is. Mm-hmm. What only thing that matters is the truth, is the image that they want to convey. And in terms of the subtext of the film and the subtext of where we are in this post-COVID world of trying to create brands and images of ourselves instead of being true to ourselves, they can't even look up because they know what the truth is and just it doesn't matter. And if there's any sort of um, mirror to present day that this film does, it's showing that the tra- you know it's basically you know, what Benoit says that he he did everything he could he showed what the truth was, but there's only so much that that matters. Yeah, the way that this specific clip ends with Benoit saying that there's nothing he can do. It's a very dour end to things, and anyone who's watched the film knows that there is an exception about to arrive. Mm-hmm. But if we're focusing in on this one, one minute clip, it is a very unfortunate end. Yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, well, uh, look at, there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack here, but um, yeah, we're going to take a look to see at this point, the truth no longer matters. And if the truth no longer matters, then what is there left to do? And if that's not an existential question, I don't know what is. <laughs> but uh, tell you what, we'll, we'll pick this up in a minute. But uh, hey, Rick, tell people where they can follow you and where they can uh, take care of it. Yeah, absolutely. 
on social media. You can search for at Mad Max Minute. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the whole kit and caboodle. It's all under the one name, at Mad Max Minute. Or you could just go to madmaxminute.com. That's where you can find my Movies by Minute project. If you're more interested in sword and sorcery, you can go to swordboys.biz or search for swordboys.biz on your social medias. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, posting every other Tuesday with, you know, supplemental posts coming between episodes. I try and keep the social media pretty active. But yeah, we have fun. It's me, Jonathan from Minute Impossible and Cast in the Furious, as well as Robin from the Karate Kid Minute. And it's the three of us going cut by cut through your favorite sword and sorcery movies. And you can follow me at Sully Baseball on Twitter. Listen to my uh, regular podcast, which is Locked on MLB. You can check out my old podcast, uh, Sully Baseball, and you can also follow the Bull Durham Minute, which I've done, and I've appeared on a whole bunch of other ones. And uh, by the way, follow our show on Twitter, at Glass Onion Min, all one word. And... Um, and please subscribe and review and rate it on your pod catcher of choice. Well, things look kind of dour here. Maybe this is how the film ends. Maybe she just loses. Or maybe, <laughs> maybe there's a way out that begins at minute 87 of Glass Onion here. Check us out on Glass Onion Minute. Thank mm-hmm. you.